For a huge part of my childhood in Nigeria, I was afraid. And part of this fear was due to this lingering feeling that I was one emergency, one mishap away from losing my life or losing someone I love. I'll admit that some of it was irrational, but a huge part of this fear was justified. You see, I read about stories and observed incidences where people, Nigerians could not get access to care in emergencies. Sometimes it was a case of people being unable to get care at the scene of the accidents or the lack of access to ambulances. And other times, if they did get to the hospital in time, maybe by the kindness of strangers, the hospitals were not ready to deliver care. And in other situations, even when the hospital had the capacity to deliver care, they refused until patients paid. This dysfunctional sequence of events is what we would ordinarily call an emergency care system. But as we can see, what exists in Nigeria and many other parts of Africa is not much of a system. As of 2016, Africa was the continent with the highest rate of road traffic deaths, with 26.6 deaths per 100,000 compared to 18.2 worldwide. And what's worse is that the death rate from road traffic accidents in Sub-Saharan Africa is expected to be 72% higher than the global average by 2030. And we also see similar trends in other causes of death that can be limited by emergency care, like ischemic heart disease, stroke, and preterm birth complications. There are several pieces that come together to form an emergency care system. And we'll get to all those pieces in future episodes. But today we are going to start with the pre-hospital piece, which is how patients are treated at the scene of the accidents and transported to health facilities. On today's episode, I speak to Folake Owoduni. Folake Oduni is my name. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Emergency Response Africa, which is a health tech company that makes it possible for anyone who's experiencing a medical emergency to get help quickly and reliably. We currently operate in Nigeria, but the vision is certainly to make sure that across Africa, anyone who needs help can get it in 10 minutes or less. We talk about how she's contributing to the pre-hospital care system through Emergency Response Africa and what the future looks like for this area of healthcare. Welcome to Where the Health I'll Be, the podcast about Africa, healthcare, and everything in between. As always, I'm your host, Chinamarami Hijirika. So Folake, thank you so much for for joining me today for creating time for this thank you for having me yeah so let's just jump right in um so what is what problem did you did you identify you know at the founding of um era um so why did you and also why did you think a health tech company um, was like the vehicle um to solving you know the problem you identified 
Yeah, so I mean, anyone who's heard me speak or pitch or, or present usually has probably also heard the story of my son, um, you know, which is what led to the creation of Emergency Response Africa. So back in 2017, he was a year and a half old and woke up one night in the middle of the night and started screaming, clearly in a lot of pain. Um, and, you know, frantic first time parents trying to figure out what was wrong. It didn't take me long to realize that I had no idea um, and couldn't help him. Now, fortunately for us, we were in Canada. So I picked up the phone and I called 911 and within about 10 minutes there were two paramedics in our home they came with all of their equipment and started checking him out fortunately for us it turned out to be a minor issue and um, within maybe another half an hour he was taken care of and back asleep we didn't need to go to hospital didn't need to even get in the ambulance and you know I just remember thinking if this situation had happened in Nigeria, most likely I would have had to knock on my neighbor's door, beg them to drive us to the hospital. And the hospital that was you know, closest to, to where we lived at the time had a reputation for being a death trap. So if you go into the hospital alive, you may not come out alive. And so all of those concerns, you know, I, I, I couldn't help but think like, I am so grateful this didn't happen there. But then what do people do when an emergency occurs? And a little bit of research just you know made very clear that the answer was not much you know people took a lot of different types of measures um, but most of them still sort of led to the same place which was you know a lack of care people experiencing long delays before getting any sort of help uh, potentially being turned away at hospital and eventually losing their lives and I think it was you know looking into the statistics that made it even clearer that this was a massive problem, not just a local issue. So <clears throat> quick context, uh, you know, if you look across Africa, it's estimated that more than 6 million people die every single year from emergency situations, situations that could have been addressed by appropriate emergency response. And Nigeria accounts for 20% of that number. So that's more than 1.2 uh, million preventable deaths in the country every single year. I mean, those are not small numbers. And of course, we kind of know what the usual suspect uh, contributors are, cardiovascular diseases, accidents, and other types of injuries, maternal conditions. Um, you know, those aren't new things in that environment, but they're certainly increasing in number. Um, and, you know, up till now, no individual, private organization, public sector organization has really been able to, at scale, provide emergency medical services in a way that, that addresses those problems. And so we saw an opportunity and thought that maybe there was uh, an opportunity to leverage technology to address that problem. Mm. So like hearing, hearing you like talk about, you know, the problem that led you to to um, emergency response Africa, I think it's it's sad actually how relatable that is. You know, I think every almost every Nigerian I feel or African has a story that's like personal to them or a story that they've heard of where there's been that need that hasn't been met. Um, so, in founding um, Emergency Response Africa, what was your approach? Um, and so far, what services have you um, put forth as solutions to to that problem yeah so I, I you know i think as part of the research there were some things that we 
realized. It's not that um, no effort had ever been made towards providing emergency medical services. It's not that there weren't any ambulances at all. Um, in fact, there had been several, now I'm talking about Nigerians in particular, there had actually been several um, attempts, uh, both public and private sector, um, at providing effective emergency services. And you know, when you look at certain places like Lagos State, for example, they've actually done a fairly good job. Um, I know I've had to call uh, the Lagos State uh, Ambulance Service for somebody who was knocked down on a bridge, and they responded, you know, and they came in a reasonable time frame. But again, you know, reliability is a challenge. There are many times where you call and simply no one picks up. So it's not that nothing had been done. But I think what we saw was that we had, um, in many ways, simply attempted to transplant what was being done um, in sort of Western climes and do the same thing in our environment, meaning you purchase, you know, a $150,000 ambulance, and then you come and pluck it down in the middle of Lagos craziness. And, you know, the fact that we already struggle with that maintenance culture, we, 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 we barely understand what it means to have paramedics. We really didn't have the supporting infrastructure for those systems. So I think that, um, you know, even with the best intentions, there were a lot of things that just weren't really in place for a system to really take off. I think today, some of those things still aren't in place, but there's definitely been a lot of progress. And I think that has informed how we sought to solve the problem. So uh, we decided that we weren't going to attempt to buy a bunch of ambulances and come and put them, you know, in, in the cities or in the rural areas as a, a contribution to EMS. We thought it would be important to leverage what resources already existed and see how we can better and more efficiently use them by bringing in technology. And so that's essentially what we did. The approach that we've taken is to create a network of first responders, emergency vehicles, and hospitals, put them together on a platform and let that platform um, essentially coordinate the response when the time comes. And so a couple of things where um, we did, you know, in a sense, transplant from other places. We do have a call center, a, a command center 24-7. It's staffed by paramedics. So these, these are people that have that field experience. You know, when someone is calling in, they can triage, but they can also provide phone-based support even while help is on the way. But then there were a few things that um, we chose to do differently. So one of them is, you know, leveraging first responders out and about in the communities. So individuals that have, um, you know, a background in, in, in medicine or nursing or paramedical science, um, working with them such that they can be activated much in the same way an Uber driver can be activated um, to go and address mm -hmm. a nearby emergency. And in some cases, we actually have them get to the scene on a motorcycle, which means that in a place like mm -hmm. Lagos, they can cut through traffic and at the very least get there, provide that hands-on help, again, while uh, a proper ambulance is on the way. And I think, you know, it's it's taking an approach that leverages the existing resources. So while we have our own ambulance, we have a network of 55. That network is mostly made up of partners. 
Um, and, you know, these are partners who are maybe private hospitals or private ambulance services. And everybody, you know, everybody needs more work. Everybody needs more utilization. And I think, you know, part of what we're doing is really working to drive up that utilization of the existing resources before we even start to think about bringing on uh, new resources. So I think, you know, just to say that the approach that we've taken to solving the problem has really been a mix of um, what has worked in other places and then taking some newer, um, not brand new, but n- different um, models and kind of bringing them into a space where they di- you know, didn't necessarily exist before. I think also, um, you know, in terms of how people request for emergency services, one of the things we did at the beginning was we did some research to ask questions like, you know, well, you know, what's the first thing you do when an emergency happens? And the answer, the most common answer for people was, you know, they, they call people, they call people they know, maybe it's their auntie that is a doctor or, you know, their yeah. friend that's a nurse. Um, and so we decided to take that and that informed us, you know, just setting up a toll free line so that people can pick up the phone and call. But we also saw a, a, a shift in how people are accessing emergency services in two ways. One was with NSARS. Um, there was a lot of efforts where, you know, things were being coordinated over Twitter. And that, you know, went okay. to show that, you know, as much as we're comfortable picking up the phone to call in an emergency, we're actually also comfortable pushing buttons. And so... Um, you know, that was one thing that led us to actually the creation of a mobile app um, as another avenue for people to reach us in an emergency. And of course, the obvious benefit um, is that we can then access their exact location, which is something that's very difficult to do uh, when you're on yeah. the phone and someone is telling you which, uh, you know, which, which yeah. plane station off, off to, the street. To, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to, to branch <laughs> after, you know. So, yeah, yeah I, I think, um, you know, that's that's how we've, with, um, set about solving that problem. Hmm. So when I think about, you know, even just here in the US, um, like a barrier to people seeking, you know, the services that ERA would provide in Nigeria, I think about, you know, financial barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about people not wanting to like call emergency services because they are afraid of, you know, what that would do to, uh, to like, you know, their finances. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does, you know, Emergency Response Africa's um, operation mm-hmm. contend with, you know, those financial barriers? Yeah, you know what, that's, that is um, a big challenge and an ongoing challenge because you're absolutely right. Um, one of the, I don't think it's a downside, but one of the challenges of our model is that because we work with partners to deliver these services, they must be paid, mm-hmm. right? They too are running a business. Um, and so, you know, we can't necessarily um, send out an ambulance and and then, you know, have no way of paying the partner. Mm-hmm. That's, that's going to disincentivize them very quickly. Um, so, you know, what we're finding when it comes to financing is, you know, the starting point has certainly been people that can afford the service, mm-hmm. like, you know, on a regular yeah. day. Um, but we're also, one of the things that we're working on right now is we've actually partnered with a healthcare financing platform and are currently in the process of integrating with them such that anyone who signs up with us on our mobile app can actually choose to qualify for a healthcare credit. And so think about it this way, you know, you get in, you you download our app, you sign yeah. up, 
And then you have, you know, a button that you can click to, you know, fill out like an extra form provide some documents. And based off of that, this company is able to assign you a certain level of credit. So let's say, you know, I don't know, 50,000 Naira or 100,000 Naira. And what it does is it tells us as a business that if you ever had an emergency, whether for yourself or even for somebody else, and you call us, Number one, we can respond without ever having to have a conversation about payment because you have access to this credit. And that credit is, you know, that gets paid to us. We can also pay our partners. But you as the person who's accessed the service can now work out with this company um, how you want to pay back. So you can pay back in three months or six months or even 12 months. I think 24 is the max. Um, you know, but the 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 benefit there is that you are alive, yeah, yeah. right? You've gotten what you need, and then you can then you know work with them to figure out an arrangement that actually works for you. So that's one of the ways that we're working to address that finance challenge, and that's especially relevant for people that maybe don't have an insurance plan. Yeah. But I think the second way, speaking of insurance, is we have been. Um, really actively pushing to work with HMOs um, because at the end of the day, um, you know, this, what we're offering is, it's not, uh, it's not yeah. new, you know, this is not a service that does not exist anywhere else in the world. It's, it's, it's part of health benefits. It's part of, you know, sort of living a secure and safe and healthy yeah. life. And so to the extent that it can be part of an existing uh, HMO plan, that really is the ideal situation. So we've been making a lot of strides towards that. And we have a few HMO partners, which, um, you know, we're, we're excited to be working with and, you know, to make sure that, that those services are available to their members. And then I think the last piece of that puzzle is really the biggest piece, which is working with government. Yeah. At the end of the day, this is a social service. So in as much as we're working to build a profitable and sustainable business around it, um, you know, we fully recognize the, the social aspect to it and its contribution to the community, to SDGs. Um, and so from that perspective, we know that we can't do this work without government. Yeah. And so that has actually informed a lot of the recent activity where we've been engaging with certain state governments mm. um, to better understand what their needs are, what their challenges are when it comes to delivering emergency services and how we might be able to step in and support. And I think some of the really uh, great things that we've been seeing are the opportunities for technology, again, to coordinate existing resources better yeah. and help them to make better decisions around how to allocate the limited, you know, uh, naira or dollars that they have to deliver on their entire healthcare system, yeah. and so, um, you know, I think those those three things are a, a critical part of figuring out that financing problem. But certainly, if you ask me today, it is a very present challenge. Thank you for listening this far. If you're enjoying this episode, there are a few ways you can help us out. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at wthw.pod. Um, you can find us on Instagram that way. You can find us on Twitter at wthw underscore pod. 
um and you can also follow us on linkedin you know you just search up the name um, where the health are we and you should be able to find the podcast that way um if you have any feedback or any suggestions on how um, we can improve the show reach out to us at wthw.pod at gmail.com so wthw.pod at gmail.com also i recommend that you tell your friends and your family if you're enjoying it too and you can also tell this to anyone else you think would be interested in this again thank you for your support and i hope you enjoyed the rest of the episode You know, emergency response Africa is part of like the pre-hospital part of like the the, the entire emergency care like pathway, um, and I assume that you know when ambulances drop people off at like facilities, they're dropping them off to get care. Um, but I know in a place like Nigeria, like you mentioned earlier, you know, telling your story about you know how the facility close to you was like a death trap, um, and it's like people go there and you know they don't really expect to come out. So is there anything that Emergency Response Africa is doing to ensure that, you know, yes, you know, you're getting people to the facilities where they can get care, um, but you're also ensuring that, you know, they actually get the care that they need and you're not just dropping them off to, to like, you know, die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a really um, good question. And yes, absolutely. I think... One of the hardest things about starting this business was recognizing that there were so many problems. Um, you know, we could talk about, you know, just saying, oh, let's put first responders, you know, out and about in the community and they can provide that initial first aid. Okay, but what if they need more than that? Okay, fine. We have to, you know, make that transportation piece happen. Okay, great. So you you give them first aid and you transport them and then you take them to hospital and it turns out that actually the doctor is not around or the hospital is really not the appropriate place for this particular type of case. Then you end up going to two or three facilities and the person still dies, you know, so... I, I think, you know, to your question, that has actually turned out to be really interestingly one of the biggest sources of delay in that entire emergency response process is number one, getting to the right hospital, and then number two, even within the hospital, making sure that the treatment people are receiving is promptly delivered. And so the approach that we've taken is as much as we're partnering with ambulances and first responders, we're also partnering with hospitals. And what that partnership process looks like is that we, um, you know, engage with them to almost, I guess the way that we call it is that you know, we conduct like an emergency readiness mm. like program, which basically looks at certain factors to see if they meet a minimum standard that we would then consider, yes, we can bring a patient to you and know that at the very least, they will get a higher level of stabilization and and treatment than what is available perhaps in an ambulance or out on the streets. 
um, and that we can trust that you will also respond promptly. And so for every hospital that we partner with, we go through that process and we sign an agreement. And as a part of that agreement, they, they understand that part of the requirement is such that if we're sending a patient to you, the expectation is that you're also attending to them mm. within a certain time frame. Now, of course, what that means is that communication is key. And so we don't, um, we don't like to surprise our hospital partners. We like to notify them in advance when a case is coming, yeah. which is common sense, really, um, you know, so that they're there, they're waiting, they're ready to receive, um, and, and most importantly, they're ready to treat. And they also have the option to opt out because if we do say, hey, we're bringing this case to you, here are all the details, and they say, listen, we cannot, you know, we're not going to be able to attend to this effectively. It gives us an opportunity to reroute that case to a place that can. So, you know, I think what you're asking is a hugely important issue. I mean, um, the, the reality in practice can yeah. sometimes be different, right? Because we cannot um, force people to always go to particular hospitals, nor do we want to. Uh, but at the same time, we recognize that, you know, sometimes there are very good reasons for people going to a hospital of their own choosing. So perhaps it's a hospital that has their history. And although the situation is uh, urgent, maybe, you know, they're not necessarily so incap incapacitated that they can't make that choice. Now, in those cases, I mean, we have seen situations where ambulance ends up delayed for, you know, even as oh, much wow. as five hours simply because you know the receiving facility is not in a position to actually receive and treat many instances we get to the receiving facility and end up actually taking the patient back to the facility of origin and for us that just really pushes us to to develop those hospital relationships and make sure that that communication aspect of the system is really solid um, because again you can do all the work in the world to, to support someone and, and to mm. save their life. But if at the point where they're then, you know, meant to move to the next phase and the next level of care, there's now just delays that make no sense, then, you know, it, it does feel like the rest yeah. of your work is wasted. So that's, I mean, you know, you, you've raised certainly an important point and we have a lot of measures in place to address that. Um, but of course, you know, there are some situations that don't always go quite according to plan. Mm. So you mentioned this earlier, um, talking about, you know, the Nigerian government and governments, you know, states, local governments. Um, I feel like the success of something like Emergency Response Africa, especially considering how, um, what's the word, like rad not radical, but like it's going to change a lot of things about how things are done, like in the emergency emergency medical delivery space, mm -hmm. um, you, re you, you would need... Um, supports from the government. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering if you could give some concrete ways um, Emergency Response Africa or governments, the governments in Nigeria or like governments across Africa as you expand, mm -hmm. concrete ways those governments can support um, the mission um, mm -hmm. of, of error. Yeah, so I mean, I think... Uh... Political will is one of those buzzwords that, you know, gets thrown around a lot in the development space and, you know, in multiple social spaces. And, and I mean, it's true, though, right? Like, yeah. at the end of the day, a, a government that is intent on providing quality care for their people 
will take the right steps. Everything from uh, putting in the right people, whether that be internally within their ministries or, you know, engaging with partners like us and certainly like making appropriate uh, budgetary allocations for this type of work. What does a great uh, partnership between a company like ours and government look like? I think one is just that shared vision. Um, at the end of the day, sometimes, you know, there's a concern that private companies, their objectives are fundamentally different from the objectives of a government. But I think in the case of a company like ours, yes, while being a private company, we're very much a social enterprise. And so there's a lot of alignment between how we think about providing emergency services and how, um, you know, a government would think about it. And so the question is, okay, how can our areas of expertise in terms of perhaps the technology, perhaps the distribution model for the, for the care providers, how can that be leveraged by the government? So rather than, again, like I said before, take the approach of, okay, great, we're going to now buy, you know, 50 ambulances and then we're going to call the press and we're going to announce it, which is kind of the typical approach. What if we, you know, took a step back and looked at the communities? What are the trends that we see? What are the natures of the emergencies? What is the level of frequency? You know, do people even understand the concept of identifying an emergency? Okay, now that we understand this, can we figure out what the actual needs are? You know, do we have some of these resources in place? Can we leverage existing primary health centers and secondary care facilities to do some of this work? And then where are the gaps? It's now within those gaps we can now start to try to fill by, you know, purchasing new vehicles. But at the the foundation of all of this, right, is, is data is actually understanding what is happening, what are the trends. And I think that's where technology again comes into play. I think for us, you know, why as much as we're a service provider today, we recognize that the future of what we're doing lies in the technology and in our capacity to be able to power these types of systems at scale, because it is only in doing that that you can actually start to understand well, what does this mean for society? If I'm starting to see an increase in heart attacks in this particular area, what, why? right? Like what are the factors that are contributing to this and what can we do as a result of those factors? How can we better use um, even our healthcare dollars or our social impact dollars to to prevent these things that are happening? I feel like that's, that's the like peak state where everything is sort of working hand in hand with the goal of not just effectively responding, but even getting into uh, predicting and taking measures to prevent. But again, before we get there, it really does start with that will, that desire to actually say like, okay, enough is enough. You know, there's no reason why people should be dying from really the most the most foolish of incidents when no. simple measures could could uh, address it, and and then have the openness to partner. I think we've been um, fortunate in the conversations we've had with two different state governments. There's been a we've seen a genuine desire. Um, to actually do something transformative for their citizens. And my hope is that there will be more and more of those, not just in Nigeria, but across Africa. Um, And the truth is, if we do it right, yes, it will cost money, but it may not cost as much as we think, because if Mm. we can be efficient about what is already on ground, um, I think it can make quite a big difference. 
All right. So for a split second here, I just want to like just shift a bit from Emergency Response mm-hmm. Africa, the social service to Emergency Response Africa, the startup, because that's what, you know, the company is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that in recent yeah. years, Africa has seen an influx of capital to tech startups just generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the numbers show that most of that capital has gone to like fintech mm-hmm. startups. So like 54% of like the um, venture capital coming into Africa last year went to fintech startups. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that does is that, what that means is that not as much is being put into things like health tech startups like um, Emergency Response Africa. Yes. Um, so I was just wondering what your experience has been um, raising funds mm-hmm. to build um, ERA. Yeah, so (laughs) that's a really interesting question because I was uh, just today on a call with somebody else who's doing something quite similar to what we're doing. And we just, you know, talked about the challenges of fundraising for this. And, And like you've rightly said, at the end of the day, what is the primary incentive of an investor? By nature, it's to generate a return on their investment um, and to do so quickly. And I think, you know, a fundamental differentiator between a health tech startup and perhaps a fintech startup is the length of time that it can get, that it can take to get to certain, you know, levels. Um, And maybe in some cases, even the, the size, like what is sort of the maximum size that this can grow to. So I I think, you know, they are, you know, very fundamentally different and it makes it harder when you are in um, (laughs) the non-sexy space. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but anyway. (laughs) It's the truth. um, You know, like, which which is what uh, health tech, you know, can certainly feel like sometimes. So I would say that um, it's been challenging, certainly. Um, I found that we have to be so much more selective about who we even talk to, because the reality is there are many, many investors for whom this will never be of interest. Um, not because they don't think it's you know a good thing, not because they don't they they are bad people or anything, but simply because they have a mandate that they're working towards, and this just does not fit. So um, you know, for us and you know, for, like I said, for the company that I was talking to earlier, um, what we found is that there are, you can, you can do quite well with angels because they see the need. They, they experience this, I think, both on like a personal and a professional level. And, um, you know, our first like unofficial round, um, was a mix of, you know, family and mm. friends, um, some angel investment, mostly angel investment, and of course, some grants. Um, and I think, uh, you know, this we're kind of in the process of raising right now, and it all has also been challenging. Um, again, seeing much more success at the angel yeah. level, um, you know, seeing some VCs that are, you know, have shown significant interest, but again, they are also weighing, and we know this, right, from conversation, from feedback, they're weighing this against other opportunities. If you have X, uh, you know, to put out into yeah. the ecosystem, you want to figure out which ones are going to give me the best bang for my buck. So it has been challenging. There's no doubt about it. But I also look to the future. I see what, um, you know, similar organizations like ours are doing in other parts yeah. of the world. And I think that's what reminds me that, yeah, we may just, you know, we're, we're still at the beginning of the journey 
And this has huge potential. Um, you know, I like to talk about the global incident and emergency management market. It's a $172 billion market, and it's comprised of everything from, um, you know, emergency related services to technology solutions, consulting services. Um, you know, and I think it's it's a space that's kind of under the radar. It's not, you know, it's not something that is in your everyday consciousness unless yeah. you're working in it. And Africa's contribution to that right now is minuscule. So, you know, but we're still, you know, the population that's going to be the largest in, I don't know, I think it's 2050 yeah. is, is kind of the year that, you know, a lot of things are sort of supposed to, you know, to get huge for Africa. So I think the potential is there. But of course, between now and 2050, how do you grow as a company? How do you survive as a company? How do you make make a difference in that time? I think that's where um, being able to find investors that are aligned to um, both the challenges and the opportunities of this space is really important. And they're not always easy to find, yeah. but they are there. Um, and when we find them, you know, we appreciate them and certainly hold on to them. I'll also just say that grants do play an important role in this type of space. Um, and, you know, one thing that COVID did was it certainly, you know, opened up a lot of people's eyes um, to the need and the opportunities. And that led to a lot of grants sort of being put out into the ecosystem as well, which is hugely valuable for startups like ours that do take a longer time um, to get to that, you know, that point of massive traction. So, yeah, I think if I was to sum up our fundraising experience, I think, you know, there have been some really great positives. Again, finding those aligned uh, angels, those, those folks that can bring strategic uh, insights and expertise beyond capital. Um, but it's also been challenging because, again, these deals are not for everyone. In fact, they're not for most people, um, which means that you do have to work harder to find the ones that, that will be excited about it. Hmm. Hmm. All right. So to close us out here, um, I just like for you to just, you know, think as far into the future as you can. So what is the future of uh, pre-hospital emergency care systems in Africa and emergency care systems as a whole? What does that future look like? Um, and how do you see emergency response Africa um, playing a role in that future? Mm hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think what the future looks like for me, you know, I see our vision, um, which is that, you know, an Africa where anyone can get help anywhere on the continent in 10 minutes or less. And when you think about the sheer expanse of what Africa is and, you know, how some places like Lagos are crazily dense and then some places are so just far apart that, you know, it would take you maybe a couple of, of, of days even to get from point A to point B. Um, mm. That's a huge undertaking. And I think, you know, to get there, the approach that we see is really going to be embedding emergency services in the community. It's something that has to be, at least at the first level, it has to be able to be provided by the people that are around you. It has to be able to be um, you know, delivered by even your primary uh, health center, the one that's closest to you, or even your neighbor, you know, somebody who um, may not necessarily, you know, be a medical doctor, but can have at least a basic amount of training enough to stop blood flow from someone who's, uh, you know, who's bleeding heavily. 
So I think the work that needs to be done is as much about providing the infrastructure and services as it is about education. Because when that education is in place, it means that at the very least, we can keep people alive enough to get them into the referral system, right? And then they can now sort of go through whatever levels they need to go through to get the care that they need. But I think it really does start at the community level. So, I mean, what role does uh, ERA play in all of this? I think our vision is to really be um, the people behind the system, right? So, um, you know, like I've mentioned about the technology, really just powering the efficiency, the making sure that the resources that are available are being used um, to their maximum capacity and as efficiently as possible. Um, and that even for, you know, a person who says, hey, you know what, my community is only, I don't know, 200 people but I have this vehicle and we need this and the closest facility is a little, you know, it's a ways away. I want to kind of be that, you know, emergency medical services system for my community. I want that to be possible because then, you know, we don't, it means that we, nobody, no one person or one entity has to say, I'm going to buy, you know, 50,000 ambulances for Africa. It means that we're all a part of that solution. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's really where I would love to see us get to. Um, and, and I'll just say that, you know, even in the, in the Western world, just, I would say in the last two months, I read a story about somewhere in Canada, I think Quebec specifically, where, you know, someone eventually lost, I think a child because again, they just had so many delays of getting an ambulance to them out in, you know, like a more rural part of the community. So whether we like it or not, even though this this can sometimes feel like an African problem or a developing economy problem, some of those challenges still happen around the world, even in the most developed of, of places. And I think it just goes to show that that community level response really is 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 a critical part of making sure that anybody wherever they are has access to that help within uh within uh 10 minutes i hope that answers your question yes yes it does it does um so yeah that's the last question but is there anything else you'd like to share before we we close out officially um well only to say that you know um we're very keen on partnerships i think you know a key focus for us over the next 12 months is we want to build relationships with people before an emergency happens um you know waiting until someone has to google to find a number to call when there's an emergency is too late and so you know uh whoever's listening to this whoever's uh interested in any sort of collaboration or just even wants to to chat about you know what can be done to um add value to this space i'm very very eager to have those conversations so please feel free to um reach out and engage with me i'm very active on linkedin and always happy to always happy to chat that way all right thank you thank you so much for lakia for for carving out time to speak with me thank you this has been a really helpful and just engaging conversation so i appreciate it thank you for tuning into another episode of where the health are we um to keep up with the podcast you can follow us on instagram at wthw.pod um or on twitter at wthw underscore pod um you can also follow the podcast on linkedin 
All you have to do is search up where the health are we. And you should be able to find the profile that way. If you enjoyed this episode, you can share it with your friends and family or with anyone else you think would be interested in this kind of content. If you have any feedback on this episode or on past episodes or you have any thoughts on how we can improve the podcast, you can message us on either one of the social media accounts or you can email us at wthw.pod at gmail.com. Um, this episode is produced by me, Chinamarmi Hijirka. The main theme sound for the podcast was produced by Mutsio Gunshino, and the artwork was created by Onio Efedua. The next episode will be out in two weeks, um, but till then, take care. <laughs>